Okay, hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to the Diggy Hypno program. This will be part three of the Sirhan Sirhan timeline written by Jim Garrison Keeler. And for this episode three, I kind of I noticed that the second episode kind of cut off, so I'm going to overlap just a tiny little bit, maybe a couple sentences. But this episode will probably be the longest of the three. I've got about uh, 20 pages to get through. So here goes. November 6, 1967, Dr. Leonard Yamshon examines Sirhan and concludes that his injuries are permanent and stationary. Sirhan tells Yamshon that he was missing from work for two weeks after his accident, according to Yamshon's report. November 7, 1967, Sirhan applies to work at the Burroughs Corporation in Pasadena. November 10, 1967, Sirhan is hired as an exercise boy at the Santa Anita racetrack. He appears to have a superiority complex and seems to be in a fog most of the time. He rides 66 horses at a salary of $2 per horse. November 25th, 67, Surin is thrown from the saddle at Santa Anita while exercising a horse. He is shaken but comes to work the next day. November 27th, 67, Surin begins working full-time at the Weedner's grocery store. November 30th, 67, Surin is laid off from his job at Santa Anita. December 20th, 67, Dr. Martin Albori examines Sirhan and finds no evidence of serious injuries, although he notices that Sirhan has flat feet. January 1st, 68. A riot breaks out at the California Rehabilitation Center in Norco, down the street from where Sirhan lived during and after the horse riding accident. In this riot, 250 inmates set fire to three buildings, causing $250,000 worth of damage for two hours. Officials blame the tension from the impending transfer of inmates to a Tehachapi facility due to overcrowding. Also blamed is the depression resulting from the holidays. The riot breaks out during an unauthorized New Year's Eve celebration in Dormitory 33. January 9th, 68. According to Philip Melanson's The Robert F. Kennedy Assassination, the New York Times publishes an article about President Johnson's support for selling weapons and fighter planes to Israel. In the same issue, another article refer, will refer to Senator Kennedy's specific promise to sell 50 phantom jets to Israel. Later, this will be the prime motive given to Sirhan for the murder, and Sirhan will repeat this narrative in subsequent interviews. However, there is no evidence from before the assassination that Sirhan was angered by the promise of 50 phantom jets. Even his notebook, which only refers to assassinating Kennedy on two of the 48 pages, does not mention Israel in connection with Kennedy, and Sirhan never told anybody during this time that he was angry at Senator Kennedy for supporting Israel. This motive was created after the assassination and reinforced by prosecution psychiatrist Seymour Pollock and others. Sirhan dutifully repeated what he had been told to say, Just and as Melson, Melson claims, much of this has to do with the politics of parole and Sirhan's eagerness to appear repentant. January 25th, 68. An investigator for the Argonaut Insurance Company knocks on the front door of the Sirhan's house at 1.30 p.m. Mary Sirhan tells the investigator that Sirhan is not home. She says that Sirhan is working, but his hours are irregular, and they tried to go back to work as an exercise boy, but had no luck because of his lack of seniority. The investigator stakes out the house, but as of 4.30, Sirhan is not returned. January 26, 68, 9.50 a.m. Argonaut insurance surveillance photos indicate that Sirhan is running freely and easily down a sidewalk and has no loss of movement and no evidence of injury. At 10 a.m., Sirhan arrives at the organic Pasadena store and begins work stamping bottles in the back room. 1967-68 from Marks. 
MK search scientist Dr. James Hamilton, who has been doing clinical testing of behavioral control materials on inmates at the California Medical Facility in Vacaville, spends more than 10,000 paying volunteers for his tests. This equates somewhere to being between 400 and 1,000 prisoners. 1968, the CIA's Office of Research and Development creates Project Often, a joint program with the Army Chemical Corps in Maryland. This project is geared towards administering drugs on humans that would cause heart attacks or strokes. Some of these experiments are done on inmates at Holmesburg State Prison in Philadelphia. The program will be terminated in January 1973. January 68. Sirhan has been expressing a desire to buy a gun, but is unable to afford one. His brother, Munir, who works at Nash's department store in Pasadena, tells Sirhan that his co-worker, George Earhart, has a gun to sell. The gun in question is an Ivor Johnson Cadet Model 22 for $25. Perhaps Sirhan has decided on his own to become interested in guns, but it's hard to find the origin of, for this desire. Munir will later tell LAPD that he did not buy the gun, but he will be found to be lying on a polygraph test. Adele makes Sirhan swear on the grave of their dead sister that he will only use the gun at the shooting range and then throw it away. In LAPD reports, someone named William Edmund Price accompanies Erhard to the Sirhan's house, Sirhan's house to sell the gun to Munir. According to the LAP Special Unit Senator Investigation, Sirhan began studying the Bible in the beginning of 1968 with a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Sirhan will end these studies in March, showing little interest in the subject. February 15, 1968. Around 6 p.m. on this day, George Earhart sells his 22 pistol to a co-worker at Nash's department store in Pasadena named Joe, who turns out to be Sirhan's brother, Munir. Munir and Sirhan meet Earhart on the corner of El Molino and Howard Street in Pasadena. Munir later tells the LAPD that Earhart visited the Sirhan's home and that Sirhan himself paid for the gun. The LAPD alleges that Munir has failed his lie detector test, but Munir does not retract his story. Earhart will fail to positively identify the gun as the one used by Sirhan during the assassination. During the sale, Munir pays for the gun, but borrows $6 from Sirhan to complete the sale. February 5, 1968. The Rosicrucian Order receives Sirhan's membership payment, indicating that he is still a member. March through May, 68. Sirhan fires his 22 revolver about six times at shooting ranges. March, 1968. FBI files contain an interview with a PCC student named Redacted, who knew Sirhan and was a member of the for Students for a Democratic Society. This student states that in March of 1968, he saw Sirhan and found that Sirhan had lost interest in the Arab-Israel conflict, resigning himself to the fact that the Arab territory would never be freed from Jewish control. This student states that Sirhan never had strong anti-Semitic feelings, and by this time Sirhan had lost contact with other Arab friends from PCC. March 7th, 68. While working at the organic grocery store, Sirhan neglects to cover a vegetable stand before closing down the store, and Weedner confronts him. Sirhan responds angrily, and Weedner tells him to leave the store. When Sirhan refuses to leave, Weedner calls the police. Sirhan leaves and never returns. Sirhan files a petition with the California State Division of Labor Enforcement in Los Angeles, claiming that Weedner still owes him $156 for 78 hours of work. The Labor Commission dismisses the case. Sirhan quits his job the same day as fellow employee Retta Drake. In mid-March, the two file a petition for wages due against the owner, John Weedner. March 10, 68. Six days before he announces his candidacy, Robert F. Kennedy flies to Delano, California, 
to visit Cesar Chavez, leader of the United Farm Workers. The Latino and working class vote will be a major target of his California campaign. March 16, 1968, Robert F. Kennedy announces his candidacy for president, running against Lyndon Johnson in the primary elections. If surrogate hand is programmed to assassinate Kennedy, this is the obviously earliest date for his programming process to begin, unless someone had advanced knowledge of Kennedy's upcoming campaign. Sirhan is not working at this time, and his whereabouts for the entire month are largely unaccounted for. Mary Sirhan will later say that for the year prior to the assassination, Sirhan has not spent a night away from home. March 19, 1968, Sirhan is betting on horses at Santa Anita on his birthday, and he decides that there is a certain horse that he does not want to win, since it is a maiden horse and has no chance of winning. He concentrates hard on wanting the horse to fail, and the horse ends up being disqualified. Sirhan believes that his desire for this outcome may have caused it to happen. March 26, 68. The Rosicrucian Order receives Sirhan's membership payment. March 1968. Sirhan has an argument with his brother Munir, who lives in the family home with him, and they do not speak at all between this time and the assassination. The nature of their argument is not known, but this, along with Sirhan's many other outbursts and conflicts with others, shows that he's becoming more com combative. He is now taking out his aggression by shooting his gun at the firing range. In March, Sirhan attends a meeting at the Theosophical Society's Adjar Lodge in Pasadena and asks member Willem Wills for book recommendations. Wills offers Sirhan the use of the library at the Society, and Sirhan asks if there are any books by C.W. Leadbeater. Sirhan refuses to give his name or address. According to an employee at a bookstore in Pasadena, Sirhan visits the bookstore five or six times between January and June and regularly buys books on metaphysics. Sometime in March, Sirhan family friend Linda Damakian gives Sirhan a car ride, and he complains that he recently applied for a job but did not get it and seems disappointed. He appears weak, thin, and ill. March 68. Joseph Marco Vecchio, a minor acquaintance of Sirhan's, sees Sirhan for the last time at a bar near Allen Street in Pasadena. Sirhan seems exuberant because $2,000 of his workers' compensation payout. Mauro Vecchio first met Sirhan in 1966 at a billiard ball, billiard hall in Pasadena. March 29, 68. Sirhan apparently writes a letter to a friend in Utrecht, Holland. This, in this letter, Sirhan complains of personal problems and says he has a girlfriend who has never been identified and is never referred to by his friend, family or friends. He either sends pictures of this girl or has sent them before. His, quote, friend, unquote, in Holland has apparently known him since 1964. The LAPD will later decide this letter is a hoax, written by a Dutch lunatic after the assassination. March 31st, 68. President Lyndon Johnson announces he will not run for re-election. April 1st, 68, estimated. Someone resembling Sirhan is seen at the Los Angeles Greyhound station. The man appears to be intoxicated or insane and shouts something to the effect, Do you remember the Watts riots? Wait till you see what I'm going to do to Kennedy. This is according to a prisoner in Indio. April 2nd, 68. Sirhan goes out on the town with Walter S. Crow Jr., an acquaintance from PCC. Crow later tells police that Sirhan dated girls occasionally. April 3rd, 68. According to Donna Herrick, owner of Lock, Stock, and Barrel in San Gabriel, Sirhan comes into the gun shop with two other Arabian or Mexican men 
possibly his brothers Adele and Munir, to buy 357 Magnum tank piercing ammo. The shop only sells this product to law enforcement officers, and the three leave the store without making a purchase. April 5th, 68. The Argonaut Insurance Company issues a $1,705 check to Surhan for a compensation for his injury. April 8th, 68. Surhan cashes his workers' compensation check for the horse accident at Crocker Citizens National Bank in Pasadena. April 10th, 68. On either this date or the 12th, 17th, or 19th, an acquaintance of Sirhan's named Kermit Sanders sees Sirhan at the Hollywood Park racing track in the clubhouse upper level across from the bar with another man of the same Arab descent. This man appears older than Sirhan. Sanders talks to Sirhan about racing and horses. Sanders does not identify either of Sirhan's brothers as the man who accompanied him. April 10th, 68. On this date, the Wednesday after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., Alvin Clark, the trash collector at the Sirhan residence on Howard Street in Pasadena, discusses politics with Sirhan, whom he knows as Saul. Sirhan is upset about the MLK assassination and tells Clark he's going to shoot Bobby Kennedy. He tells Clark, what do you want to vote for him for? I'm going to kill the SOB. If Sirhan is in fact being programmed to kill Kennedy, he's heavily under the influence of his programmers by this point. He's buying ammunition and practicing shooting with him, and is now mindlessly expressing hatred for Kennedy. This occurs long before the, quote, TV show, unquote, of May 18th, where he ostensibly learns that Kennedy supports sending jets to Israel to use against the Palestinians. This is supposedly the origin of desire, his desire to kill RFK. Sirhan will later tell investigators that he exploded with rage precisely when he learned of Kennedy's plan to send the 50 Phantom jets to Israel. See May 26 for more on this. April 12, 68. Shortly after Sirhan receives his workers' compensation check, he gives 1000 in cash to his mother to keep for him. April 14, 68. Louis Shelby, co-owner of the Fez restaurant where Adele Sirhan is employed as an oud player, goes to the Sirhan's house for Easter Sunday and has an argument with Sirhan about the situation in the Middle East. According to Shelby, Sirhan is a follower of Ab. Del Nasser. <clears throat> April 28, 68. A gardener at the Granja Vista del Rio Ranch in Corona, Sirhan's old employer, receives a visit from Sirhan on the state. Sirhan is asking the whereabouts of a man named Frank, who used to be the head waiter at the ranch. The gardener does not know the whereabouts of Frank or why Sirhan wanted to contact him. This is probably referring to Frank Donnarama, but why Sirhan would want to get contact him is anyone's guess. May 68, Sirhan receives the Rosicrucian Digest, which contains an article advising that, quote, by writing down plans, goals, and ideas, believing ardently in them, and reading them frequently, the plans, goals, and ideas would materialize, unquote. unquote. That's from the appellant's opening brief from the appeal. This may explain some of Sirhan's notebook writings, but not the origin of his hatred for Kennedy. May 1968. Columbia University psychiatrist Herbert Spiegel performs a hypnosis experiment at the annual American Psychiatric Association meeting, which is recorded for NBC television. He successfully places a man under hypnosis and convinces him that a communist plot is going to take over American radio and TV. When taken out of the trance, the man believes the plot is true and has no memory of being told about it. The belief is such that a victim of hypnosis 
would have to be actively deprogrammed in order to remove his false ideas, ideas or restore his memory. May 2nd, 68. <clears throat> Sirhan meets up with an old acquaintance named Walter Crow, a friend from junior high school who has also had attended Pasadena City College before transferring to UCLA in 1965. Crow, a political radical, is close friends with radical communist and FBI informant William T. DeVal. As DeVal will reveal in a 1970 memoir, Sirhan makes revolutionary statements to Crow about waging a war against the establishment. Crow, a campus radical with ties to the communist underground, is under surveillance from the LAPD at this time and is possibly being monitored by the FBI as well. The FBI files include an interview with an individual whose name is redacted but is most likely Walter Crow. This individual was a member of the Southern California District Communist Party and had recently graduated from UCLA. He tells the FBI that he's spoken with Sirhan recently and attempted to recruit him to the Communist Party and feels ter terribly guilty that he may have provoked Sirhan's revolutionary rage in some way. In one of Sirhan's notebooks, there is a revolutionary rant. Quote, I advocate the overthrow of the current president of the effing United States of America, unquote, including the Marxist creed, quote, workers of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains and a world to win, unquote. He promises America will soon face a downfall so abysmal that you will never recover from it. May 4th, 68, sometime between 11 and 2.45 p.m., Robert Grialva and his her Roberta Grialva and her brother Richard, while at the San Gabriel Valley Gun Club on Fish Canyon Road in Duarte, see Sirhan firing guns while accompanied by a man in his 30s and a woman who is attractive and blonde in her late 20s wearing a scarf. Sirhan and his, and his companions leave together in a Lincoln Continental, possibly a 66 or 67 model. Charles Kendall also sees Sirhan at the range firing a 22 pistol very accurately and rapidly, and sees an old beat-up DeSoto, possibly Sirhan's, parked in the lot next to his own car. Fullerton McChesney also sees Sirhan at the range with another man. James Thornborough sees Sirhan at the range and does not see him talking to anyone else. According to Thornborough, Sirhan leaves between noon and one. Claudia Williams and her husband Ronald have a conversation with Sirhan about his gun. Sirhan teaches Claudia how to shoot the gun, and they do not observe him with anyone else. May 5th, 68. An unidentified acquaintance of Sirhan's living in Utrecht, Holland, apparently sends Sirhan a letter on the state. It arrives at the grocery store where Sirhan formerly worked, and John Wiedner opens it on accident. According to the LAPD, there appeared to be a particular reference to some actions Sirhan was contemplating prior to May 5th, 1968. The writer of the letter seemed to be trying to get Sirhan to change his mind. As the letter states, quote, Thanks for your letter of April 29th, but I am surprised to read you have completely changed your mind. What has gone into you, sir? I know you have always been a kind of pessimistic, even since the first time I knew you back in 64, but you can't live on that way. Why don't you go try to change it? I know Arabian thinking is different from American thinking, but don't forget you have a real free life and you can do whatever you like to. Why don't you talk to your girlfriend about it? She will understand you. As far as I can see, it is a pretty girl. Why don't you send me some more or better pictures from both of you? Are you going to marry her? I hope she will give you the life you want. Maybe you will have some kids, and then after a few years, and you will see everything looks different then. You wouldn't like it that way, the way it is right in the U.S., or do you? 
Look what happened to Dr. King a couple of weeks ago. I know to be rich is nice, but I've, I had so many bad luck in my life, I finally got used to it. And I'm satisfied with what I have right now. And beside that, my old boss came to ask me back to work. Well, you see, not having so much money, having a lot of risks and all that stuff, all of a sudden the tide turns. The 1st of June, I will start there, and I know I'm going to enjoy it. Well, dear sir, I hope you won't do anything. You will be sorry for later, and please give me finally your real address. I even believe this address is not complete with the name, without the name on the street. I thought Los Angeles was so big that this would hardly be enough. Why don't you go get married right away? Then you can have your own address. Having for me to the other can't good at all. My daughter is growing up fine. She will be nine years old at the 6th of August. Send her a nice card, will you? Well, sir, I am going to bed now because it is pretty late, and tomorrow I have a lot of work to do. I hope you can write pretty soon so we will have better contact with each other than in the past. I wish you and your girl all the best for the future. Many greetings, your friend, P.S. Next time I will send you some pictures. According to police, the letter was signed to Mr. E.B.E.S. and was postmarked June 21st, although the stamp was purchased in May, which is, of course, long after the assassination. LEPD files show that Dutch authorities believe it was sent by a deranged man who sends letters to many notorious criminals. If true, this man somehow knew that Sirhan had worked for John Wiedner and believed Sirhan would receive this letter even though he was in jail. Another problem is that this deranged man could have simply sent a letter to Sirhan in care of the prison system. He must have known Sirhan would never read the letter if he sent it to his former employer. And there's the question of the May 5th date. Why would this person backdate the letter? If the letter is real, it shows that Sirhan had a girlfriend or someone he thought was his girlfriend, and he had a mysterious friend in the Netherlands. Sirhan wanted to conceal his friendship with this man by giving him his employer's address rather than his home address. He had been in fairly regular contact with this person before the exchange of these two letters, and Sirhan had recently changed his mind about something. If the letter is authentic, it is a mystery why the sender would wait until June 21 to send it, unless the LAPD simply fabricated the June 21st date to make it appear to be a hoax. May 13, 68. On this date, or the day after Sirhan comes into Golden Garter Bar with a man named Jim, according to owner Andrew Mardigiani, Sirhan is seen with his DeSoto car at this time and indicates that Jim is a real person connected to Sirhan. And Marta Gianni is not mistaken, as the LAPD will later decide he is. Jim is reported to be a 28-year-old man with a southern accent who is always smiling and is thought to have worked at Worthington Corporation in Alhambra. May 13, 68. Law Professor Alan Shefflin's statement of 11-2011 for Sirhan's appeal. Hypnotism expert George, Dr. George Esterbrooks of Harvard University gives an interview to the Rhode Island Evening Bulletin in which he confesses that he has worked for the U.S. military and intelligence services in hypnotizing and programming people and that the Manchurian candidate scenario is a real possibility. Esterbrooks has been doing this since the 20s, and the Soviets have done this since the infamous Moscow show trials of the 1930s. Esterbrooks states that it is possible to give someone false memories program them to do things without remembering the programming, and make many similar actions. According to Shefflin's statement, the CIA's MKUltra and Artichoke programs instituted in 1952 studied subjects including forced amnesia, inducing suicide, unconscious recording of memories or messages, 
tolerance for pain, and specifically the Manchurian candidate scenario. These experiments go far back, as far back as 1880s in psychiatric circles. May 14, 1968, about three weeks before the assassination, Sirhan visits the Broughton bookstore in Pasadena, where he's a regular customer. He shops for books on metaphysics, the occult, Eastern religions, and black magic. Employee Henry Ruthhart later tells the LAPD that Sirhan is not friendly or talkative when he visits. May 18, 68. According to prosecutor, Sirhan sees a TV biography of RFK, which shows the candidate's intention to send jets to Israel for their self-defense. This enrages him. According to Sirhan's law lawyer, Lawrence Teeter, in the second petition for writ of habeas corpus, and many other investigators, this program was not aired until May 20th and it did not mention sending jets to Israel. Sirhan's notebook entry ostensibly comes from the 18th, which writes, May 18th, 9.45 a.m. My determination to eliminate RFK is becoming more, more the more of an unshakable obsession. RFK must die. RFK must be killed. Robert F. Kennedy must be assassinated. RFK must be assassinated. RDK must be assassinated. RFK must be assassinated. RFK must be assassinated. RFK must be assassinated. According to testimony, Sirhan gets upset because he had supported RFK for president until this time. It just bugged me, sir. It burned me up. He believes this when he wrote the line in his notebook about killing RFK, but he does not remember writing it. He writes in 5th June 68 that Robert F. Kennedy must be assassinated before the 5th of June 1968. He testifies that June 5 refers to the date of the Israeli assault on the Arabs in 67. There's no mention that June 5th is the day of the primary and RFK will be leaving California on that day. He also says he was triggered by the mention of Israel, but does not remember writing it. At some point, he also writes, quote, please pay to the order of, 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 unquote, but does not remember writing it and does not have a bank account. This is the same notebook that he has used several years before while studying at PCC. Sirhan clearly was only developing his hatred for Kennedy in a trance state. This 19, in his 1969 interview with NBC News, Sirhan describes this experience of seeing Kennedy's image take his own in the mirror around this time. Quote, That was the only time, sir, when I saw Kennedy's picture image in the mirror. Now I know. Well, that's what I saw, sir. I don't know if his image was in the mirror. In reality, in reality, in reality. But I know it was an illusion, sir, but I saw it, unquote. He goes on to describe how he considered Kennedy to be a prince and that he could have succeeded, but became enraged when he saw Kennedy on TV promising to send 50 jets to Israel when he had been promising to bring the same kinds of fighter jets back home from Vietnam. He tells the interviewer that anything about Israel starts me off, sir. It must be stated plainly, Sirhan never consciously hated Kennedy, and the details about how this hatred began are murky. Kennedy's support for Israel was a recent event in Sirhan's consciousness, Sirhan could have learned of Kennedy's pro-Israel stance in January 68 at the earliest. Indeed, he didn't display much interest whatsoever in Kennedy's campaign, whether positive or negative during this time. Sirhan's apparent anger toward Kennedy only emerged during the trial, after repeated coaching from his own defense team and the psychiatrist who examined him. Furthermore, Sirhan did not consciously decide or plan to kill Kennedy. Notice that all Sirhan remembers is, quote, it just bugged me, it just burned me up, unquote. He never says, quote, I decided to kill him when I learned that he would sell the 50 jets to Israel, unquote. In all of Sirhan's subsequent interviews, he remembered purely negative reactions, not conscious decisions. 
he may have been programmed to enter a trance state and write these notes in response to certain stimuli, or he may have been instructed to write the notes while in a trance state induced by a programmer. Two years of immersion in the fraudulent pseudoscientific <clears throat> amorc cult, plus his heavy reading of occult literature, had perfectly prepared him to enter altered states of consciousness. As it was stated during Sirhan's 1969 appeal, all the psychiatrists who testified in the 1968 trial agreed that it was impossible for Sirhan to premeditate this murder with malice aforethought. May 20th, 1968. Kennedy and his entourage leave their headquarters at the Ambassador Hotel and travel to Alhambra, San Gabriel, and Duarte, making campaign stops. At noon, they arrive at Robbie's Restaurant in Pomona, where a luncheon is scheduled. Tickets cost $2.50. Speaking to a Jewish congregation at Temple Isaiah in Los Angeles on the 20th, Kennedy gives his support to Israel and calls for Arab states to recognize Israel's existence and sovereignty. This is clearly an example of pro-Israeli sentiment near the May 18th date specified in Sirhan's notebook, but there's no mention of the 50 phantom jets and was not televised, so this cannot be the catalyst for Sirhan's rage. 12-20-130. <clears throat> Restaurant employee Robert LeBeau sees Sirhan at RFK's speech at Robbie's restaurant while he's working as security to prevent unwanted people to come up the stairs to the location of the speech. Sirhan and a female companion are attempting to go upstairs, and the woman tells LeBeau that she's with the senator's party and that the senator just waited for them to come up. LeBeau lets the two go up the stairs. He later sees the two upstairs and realizes they are not with the senator. He accidentally bumps into Sirhan and says, pardon me. Sirhan responds, why should I? LeBeau describes the woman as white female American, light brown hair, possibly blonde, attractive, slim figure, wearing a satin type material blouse, white in color. 1.30, Kennedy leaves Pomona via motorcade and heads to Ontario. After this, he flies to San Diego, where he makes four appearances, then comes back to Long Beach at night. On the 20th, Sirhan buys $3.77 worth of gas, at the Richfield Oil Company in Pasadena. On the night of the 20th, Sirhan meets up with old junior high school friend Walter Crow at PCC and goes out drinking with him and two other students, ending up at a topless bar in a Mexican restaurant. May 21, 68. The Kennedy campaign reveals its Hollywood for Kennedy committee, consisting of a veritable, veritable who's who of Hollywood royalty. May 21, 68. Sometime between the 21st and the 25th, Kermit Sanders sees Sirhan at the Hollywood Park racetrack at the Winter Circle and has a conversation with him about horses. May 22nd, 68, RFK is campaigning in San Francisco. May 23rd, 68, PCC student Michael Hagerty sees acquaintance Sirhan at Denny's. Sirhan is sitting with some other Arab students. Hagerty approaches the table to say hi, but Sirhan starts talking in Arabic to his friends, ignoring Hagerty. Sirhan and his friends leave the restaurant without ordering any food. Later in the trial and in the media, Sirhan will be portrayed as a loner with few friends, but there's much evidence to suggest that while he was opinionated and erratic, eccentric, and could at times be confrontational or socially awkward, he did have friends. May 24th, 68. The Kennedy campaign's Kennedy for President Gala takes place at the Los Angeles Sports Arena. Sirhan is seen there by an anonymous caller to the FBI. Sirhan is moved along by Kennedy assistance. May 26, 68. Speaking in Temple Neva Shalom in Portland, Kennedy makes impassioned pro-Israel pronouncements, quote, the U.S. must defend Israel against aggression from whatever source. Our obligations to Israel 
unlike our obligations towards other countries, are clear and imperative. Israel is the very opposite of Vietnam. Israel's government is democratic, effective, free of corruption, its people united in its support. We are committed to Israel's survival. We are committed to defying any attempts to destroy Israel, whatever the source. And we cannot and must not let that commitment waver, unquote. Kennedy finishes the speech by saying, quote, The United States should, without delay, sell Israel to 50 Phantom Jets she has so long been promised, unquote. A May 26 article from the Pasadena Independent entitled Paradoxical, Paradoxical Bob describes Kennedy's criticism of the Vietnam War and his paradoxical support for arming Israel. This article will be found in Sirhan's pocket on the night of the assassination. May 27, 68. The Pasadena Independent runs a story about Kennedy's pro-Israel speech in Portland. The Sirhan family subscribes to this paper. May 68, around two weeks before the assassination, Sirhan enters an auto parts store in Pasadena to buy items for his car. His acquaintance, Ivan Garcia, is working and notices that Sirhan has a large roll of cash, including $100 bills, but complains that he is losing too much money at the track and has had to stop betting on horses. May 28, 68, Sirhan attends the ancient myster- mystical order of Rose Crucius meeting in Pasadena at 745. He is introduced to the group as a new member. He says that he has been a member of the organization for about a year, but this is his first meeting. According to some, Sirhan introduces himself as Joe. Sirhan participates in an experiment where he's blindfolded, and various items are pushed against his skin, and he must describe the number of items. One attendee believes Sirhan is accompanied by attendee Henrietta Boos, who denies knowing him. Sirhan tells Sherman Livingston, an official with Amork, that he wants to talk with him at length, but leaves, Sirhan leaves before this can occur. May 28, 68. A man resembling Sirhan is seen by Beverly Bronze at the Lakewood Country Club during a luncheon and rally for Kennedy. A young white woman is seen talking to him. She's about 19 years old. According to LAPD, Bronze later believes the person she saw was Democratic Party worker Fernando Hernandez. May 29, 68. On and around this date, Sirhan and someone named Jim are seen in the Golden Garter. Sirhan tells Jim, we will wait till he gets into town and then we will get him. Jim responds, cool it. At this time, Jim requests more credit at the bar and Andrew Martigiani, the owner of the bar, refuses because Jim already owes $5. Jim and Sirhan leave the bar after this. Martigiani has also seen Sirhan at the bar on two other occasions with a Mexican man around 24 years old and 165 pounds. Later, the descriptions of Jim and Sirhan appear to match up with patron James Wilson and his friend Robert Andrese, who may have been the man mistaken for Sirhan. However, Sirhan was undoubtedly a regular customer at the Golden Garter. Patron Stephen Stewart tells the FBI that he has played pool with Sirhan there, and patron Karen Haynes believes she has seen Sirhan there as well. Harold Pitts, another patron, specifically tells the FBI that he played pool with Sirhan at the bar and that it was not Andrese. However, Martigiani has seen Sirhan arrive and leave the bar in his DeSoto car in the company of this Jim. So the evidence points to Jim being a real associate of Sirhan. May 30th, 68. Kennedy tours the San Joaquin Valley. A witness sees Sirhan at the train station in Turlock, California, accompanied by a white male and white woman, awaiting Senator Kennedy's arrival. She has no doubt that this is Sirhan. June 1st, 68. According to Larry Arno, Sirhan purchases two boxes of 22 Super X ammunition at Lock, Stock, and Barrel 
while accompanied by two men who are possibly his brothers. Both brothers deny being in the gun shop with Sirhan. A receipt found in Sirhan's car confirms he purchased four boxes of 22 caliber bullets at Lock, Stock, and Barrel in Pasadena. Sirhan shoots his pistol at the Corona police firing range. Dr. Brown claims that Sirhan remembers being there, accompanied by a man with a foreign accent and turned down mustache, who was teaching him to shoot at vital human organs. This man gave Sirhan the idea that government officials needed to be killed, and he shared Sirhan's interest in shortwave radios. In the trial, handwriting expert Lawrence Sloan testified that Sirhan did indeed sign into the Corona police range on the 1st. Harry Starr's trial testimony confirmed Sirhan's presence at the Corona police pistol range from 12.15 to 3. A man hiking with his son in Temecula believes he sees Sirhan with an Arabic man and woman target shooting at the Rancho, California area with a 22 rifle and a 22 pistol. They are driving a two-door dark blue Volkswagen. Kennedy and Eugene McCarthy have a debate on KGO television in San Francisco. On the first, Sirhan asks his mother for $300 of his workers' compensation money, depleting the original total of three to, to 400 His mother accuses him of wanting the money for horse betting, and he replies that he needs the money to get a job. She throws $400 of cash at him, and he picks up $300 and hands the 100 back to her. On June 1st, a television debate between Kennedy and Democratic senator and rival Eugene McCarthy airs, in which Kennedy reaffirms his support for Israel and gives in specific, gives his support for selling the 50 Phantom Jets to them. Quote, I've said that we can at least, we at least have to help them rebuild the strength they lost in the recent war. If that means 50 Jets, well, I'm for 50 Jets, unquote. This may be the TV special Sirhan claims to have seen that infuriated him. Problematically, this is long after the May 18th date, date specified in his notebook. Around this time, Sirhan is seen at a leather shop at 339 South Main Street, apparently in Los Angeles, by an employee, Lou Berman. Sirhan enters, accompanied by a female foreign origin, possibly Cuban-American, 27 and 30, who is plump and perhaps pregnant. Sirhan tries to buy a nine-shot K-22 caliber revolver, but after he tells Berman he is an alien and not a U.S. citizen, Berman refuses to sell it. Sirhan and the woman argue over the price of the gun, and Sirhan leaves. Berman will tell the LAPD that Sirhan was well-known at the pawn shops in the neighborhood. June 2nd, 68, Sirhan attempts to shoot at the Corona Police firing range, but they are only accepting shotguns on that day. He only owns a 22 pistol. According to Lawrence Teeter's second petition for writ of habeas corpus in 2002, an imposter signed Sirhan's name into the register at the Corona range. The range master, a Corona policeman, remembers the man who signed the register as a 200-pound, 6-foot-tall man whose face resembled Sirhan's. Teeter suggests that the imposter was sent to the range to create a paper, tra paper trail, providing evidence that Sirhan was planning his murder ahead of time. After failing to shoot his gun at the range, Sirhan returns home and buys an LA Times in Pasadena. He reads the newspaper that there will be a public reception for RFK at the Ambassador Hotel that night. Sirhan goes and sees RFK, who looks like a saint according to his testimony. He does not remember wanting to kill RFK or going to the ambassador with that intention. Sirhan is seen between 8.30 and 10 p.m. at the Ambassador Hotel during a reception for RFK. He is positively identified by William Bloom, who worked at the liquor store next door to the Organic Pasadena Food Company, where Sirhan worked at the same time. An entry appears in Sirhan's notebook, quote, Editorial by George Putnam, Friday, June 2nd, 
10.30 p.m., unquote. This refers to a TV news commentator. Sirhan claims that he did not watch TV when he came home from the ambassador on the 2nd. He went right to bed. This date was not a Friday, and Sirhan will not recall when he wrote this. The following is from LAPD's activity 72 hours prior to assassination. 12.01 to 8 a.m. Sirhan is in his bedroom at 696 East Howard Street. 8 to 9 a.m. He drives his mother to church at 1757 North Lake Street in Pasadena. 9 to 11 a.m. Sirhan's whereabouts are unknown. 11 a.m. Sirhan is at home. 11.15 to 5 p.m. Unknown. In an LAPD report, campaign worker Eleanor Severinson, Severson says that around 2 or 3 p.m. on this day, campaign volunteer Kaibar Khan brings in four men to be registered as volunteers on the campaign, and one of those men is Sirhan. In the report, Khan is said to have brought in four to eight Arab Americans a day to volunteer on the campaign. Campaign worker Larry Strick also claims to have seen Sirhan with Khan at this time. A word about Kabar Khan. In an article in The Historian from 2021, Ben Offler provides valuable background to the life and career of Kaibar Khan Gudarzian, an Iranian businessman who was an enormous thorn in the side of the Johnson administration. Gudarzian hated the regime of the Shah of Iran and actually sued him on the grounds of corruption. Since Gudarzian was outspoken and aggressive in its denunciations of the Shah, and since Johnson was intent on preserving Iran as an ally in the Middle East, Gudarzian became quite unpopular in Washington. Gudarzian's claims of corruption were found to be baseless by the U.S. government, who wanted very badly to prosecute Gudarzian. But as the article states, quote, the Department of Justice, Department of State, and U.S. Embassy in Tehran all agreed that although there were grounds for pursuing a criminal case against Gudarzian for forgery, conviction was unlikely without the testimony of certain prominent Iranians, unquote. Gudarzian had decided that a Kennedy administration would have a much more preferable policy toward Iran. In a background paper in the Department of State from August 15, 1967, available at the Office of the Historian section of the State Department's website, we see the following on the, quote, Gudarzian case, unquote. A spectacular irritant in our relations with the Shah arose out of the activities of an Iranian promoter, Kaibar Gudarzian or Karbar Khan, as he calls himself. Three years ago, he published a sensational set of allegations of multi-million dollar embezzlement, including charges against members of the Shah's family and involving AID activities in Iran. The allegations were repudiated by Senator McClellan after detailed inquiry conducted by the Senate Committee on Government Operations. Gudarzian nevertheless succeeded in tying up substantial bank accounts of the Shah's brother and sister for many months until a federal district court ruled against Gudarzian last autumn. Gudarzian's appeal to the U.S. Court of Appeals was rejected, and his suit against the prince and princess has apparently been dropped. The Justice Department has continued to review the possibility of criminal prosecution against Gudarzian. At the present time, however, Justice does not believe that any of the possible charges can be pressed successfully due to a variety of legal technicalities. The Department of Justice is continuing, however, to evaluate the case will take action if it appears that an opportunity is presented. Our immigration authorities have confirmed that Gudarzian is, quote, out of status, unquote, and they have initiated proceedings designed to affect his deportation. This can be a lengthy process, taking a year or more, but the matter will be pressed as rapidly as administratively feasible. Khan was under the watchful eye of the Justice Department, and it's almost certain that the FBI's 
Co-Intel Pro program would have been reading his mail and tapping his phones. And as the church committee report describes, since Khan was a foreign national, the CIA could freely monitor him. So the question arises is, why did Sirhan end up in the company of Khan? Khan later claimed to have seen Sirhan at headquarters, but denied knowing him. Incidentally, Khan attested to seeing the woman in the polka dot dress during the assassination. Was Sirhan potentially sent to assassinate Khan in a plan that never materialized? Also, it seems that Sirhan was brought to headquarters by one of, Arab, one of the Arabs in Khan's local network. This and the other sightings of Sirhan with mysterious Arabs at gun shops and other locations points to the possibility of Sirhan's handlers being some group of Arab-American government informants. Were some of these Arab-American campaign volunteers actually spying on Khan for the Justice Department? The LAPD's records of the interviews with Khan from the assassination are in their special unit senator collection. Khan had been fearful of the Shah and his agents in the U.S. ever since he testifies testified on the Shah's misuse of American funds before the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations in 1963, and even more so since an article appeared in The Nation in 1965, which described his allegations against the Shah. Khan had been violently attacked by multiple assailants in March of 68, leaving him in a cast. According to the LAPD report, Khan did not wish to get mixed up in an affair involving the Arab countries and the Jewish state that might come to as a result of the assassination. This is a cryptic comment. How could the assassination cause an affair between Israel and the Arab countries unless Khan believed Sirhan was somehow manipulated by larger political forces? Soon after the assassination on June 27th, Khan will be arrested by the Immigration and Naturalization Service for overstaying his allowed time in the U.S. and his deportation hearing will be set for July 19th. So clearly the government is trying to get rid of him around this time. <clears throat> Regarding Sirhan's possible support for the Shah, in LAPD records is the statement of a former classmate of Sirhan's named Terry Fell, who went on to both middle school and Pasadena City College with Sirhan. In 1968, Fell worked for military intelligence with the 115th Group of the U.S. Army in San Francisco. According to his statement, while at PCC, Sirhan was involved with a campus group that supported the Shah of Iran during his visit to the United States. This visit must have been on June 5, 1964. When, according to the State Department's Office of the Historian, the Shah made private visits to New York and Los Angeles. This would be during LBJ's administration. We know that Johnson was much more supportive of the Shah than JFK was. Did Sirhan know any campus federal informants who were discouraging criticism of the Shah, or did he become one himself? One possibility is that the Arabic men seen with Sirhan were targets of or informants for a joint CIA Mossad operation. In an article for the MERIP Middle East Report from 1986, Jeff McConnell writes about Israeli spies in the U.S. He describes from how, from 1967 to 74, CIA counterintelligence chief James Angleton coordinated Operation Chaos, Chaos, which was a joint surveillance operation run by both the CIA and the FBI that monitored political activists in the U.S., one aspect of chaos was a partnership with the Mossad, Israel's intelligence agency, in which Arab activists were spied on, and their personal information was then sent to Mossad. This was a response to anti-Zionist and Arab Americans' activism following the Six-Day War of July 1967. Mossad was intent on monitoring and suppressing all anti-Israeli activities, which understandably flared up at the time. In the CIA mandate and the war on terror, 
Author Grant T. Harris describes how chaos began. Quote, at the request of the president, the DCI established a special operations group within the CIA in August 1967 to examine the role of foreign influence on domestic disorder. disorder unquote. Chaos eventually collected 13,000 files on 300,000 groups and individuals within the United States. A RAND report from 2009 provides more context. Not only was the CIA funding the National Student Association, Association but the NSA's Operation Minaret spied on international students by intercepting their communications. The Church Committee report also lists Project Resistance, a CIA operation that lasted from 67 to 73, which monitored campus radical groups across the U.S. The CIA used local police, campus administrators, and informants to collect information on any groups that might threaten CIA facilities or operations. Church Committee report of 1976 detailed the scope of domestic surveillance from the period covered in this timeline. Throughout the 60s, the FBI intensified its use of informants to infiltrate college groups affiliated with the, quote, new left, unquote, which was an umbrella term that referred to any kind of leftist, anti-war, civil rights, feminist, or anti-establishment group. While the FBI manual made certain prohibitions on the use of informants, most agents ignored these prohibitions and informants flooded these leftist groups, providing massive amounts of information to the FBI. In the winter of 1967-68, the Justice Department called on local police departments to aggressively use informants to penetrate new left groups and report back to a central office in the Justice Department. Police eagerly followed through on the mandate. An interdivision information unit was created in the department, and it was used to create a master index of individuals and groups associated with, quote, black power, pacifist, new left, pro-red Chinese, anti-Vietnam War, pro-Castro, etc., unquote. Any anti-Zionist or pro-Arab groups would surely be swept up in this. As Jefferson Morley describes in his book, The Ghost, James Angleton not only partnered with the FBI, but he had almost complete control over the CIA's relationship with Israel. Given that Angleton was wholly devoted to Israel and also in control of Operation Chaos, not to mention the illegal Houston plan, which opened the first-class mail of anyone deemed suspicious by the government, it is no secret now that Arab Americans were under the scrutiny of the CIA and Mossad. So the idea of Sirhan getting swept up in a government operation through his mysterious Arab acquaintances becomes feasible. To return to the afternoon of June 2nd, 3 p.m., Kennedy arrives at the Orange County Airport in Santa Ana, and departs in a car for Bolsa Grande High School in Garden Grove. He arrives at 3.45 and addresses a crowd of 10,000 at the Strawberry Festival there. He stays until 6 p.m., then departs with his family to Disneyland, which is a last-minute decision. The caravan stays at Disneyland till 7 p.m. Then Kennedy's children depart for the Beverly Hills Hotel, and Kennedy and his wife Ethel depart for the Ambassador Hotel. They arrive between 8.30 and 9 p.m. From 5 to 6 p.m., Sirhan is at home. His whereabouts between 6 and 8.30 are unknown. From 8.30 to 9.30, Sirhan is seen at the Kennedy Rally at the Ambassador Hotel. For an hour between 9.30 and 10.30, his whereabouts are unknown. Then he is at home at 10.30 or 11 p.m. June 3rd, continued from LAPD report. Midnight to 8 a.m., Sirhan is home in his bedroom. 8 to 8.15, Sirhan drives his mother to work. 8.30 to 10.30, his whereabouts are unknown. 10.30 to 10.40 a.m., he buys gas at Richfield Gas Station at 2529 East Foothill Boulevard in Pasadena. From 10 a.m. to 12.30 a.m. p.m., unknown. 
Then he's at home from 1230 to 1. From 1 to 430, his whereabouts are unknown, according to the LAPD. Around 1.30, Eleanor Severson sees Sirhan again at campaign headquarters standing by the coffee machine. From 4.30 to 5, he watches TV at home. From 5 to 6, he's at home eating dinner. From 6 to 9, he's at home reading in his room. Sirhan asks his mother for the remaining 400 from his workers' compensation award because he plans on going to the horse races. Apparently, this accounts for the $400 found in Sirhan's wallet after the assassination. Sirhan is seen getting gas at 11 a.m. at the Richfield gas station where he used to work on Foothill Boulevard. From the LAPD's SUS report, 10 a.m., Kennedy leaves the Ambassador Hotel and goes to LAX where he takes a flight to San Francisco. He gives a speech at Fisherman's Wharf and returns to Long Beach Airport at 4. He then goes to the Lincoln Park section of Long Beach where he gives a short speech, then drives through Watts where he speaks to the crowd from his car. At 5.30, the caravan leaves Watts and drives through Venice. At 8 p.m., Kennedy takes a flight from LAX to San Diego and returns at the 12.30 a.m. on the 4th. He does not feel well. June 4th and 5th, 68. Kennedy's campaign scheduled for the 4th. Kennedy rests at the home of Manchurian candidate director John Frankenheimer in Malibu, awaiting election results. Kennedy beats McCarthy 46 to 41%. At 7.15, Kennedy's driver Don Weston arrives at the Frankenheimer residence and then drives Mrs. Frankenheimer and Mrs. Kennedy to the ambassador. Kennedy and campaign manager Fred Dutton are to drive to the ambassador by Mr. Frankenheimer. They arrive at 8.10 p.m. Kennedy goes to his room and spends the next few hours talking to the press, friends, and staff. From respondents' brief, Sirhan's appeal, Sirhan goes to Hollywood Park but does not like any of the horses and decides to go to the San Gabriel Valley Gun Club to go shooting. He has plans either to go to a Rosicrucian meeting that night or get new tires for his car. He has three boxes of ammunition, but on the way to the gun club, he goes back to Lock, Stock, and Barrel, where he buys six or seven cartons of shells. Police will find the following items in Sirhan's pocket, $100, bills, $100 bills and several smaller bills. A lyric sheet to the song, This Man is Your Man, to the tune of This Land is Your Land which was being sung at the hotel to celebrate Kennedy's victory. An article from an unknown newspaper advertising Kennedy's presence at the Coconut Grove at the Ambassador Hotel on the night of June 2nd. In the paradoxical Bob newspaper column mentioned above, discussing Kennedy's support for Israel. Sirhan stays at the range from noon to 5 p.m. He remembers talking to the range master, Everett Buckner, shooting a 38 caliber gun, which is not the one he purchased in February. Firing normally, not in a rapid-fire manner, and leaving when the range closed. Buckner sees Sirhan arguing with a woman who angrily tells him, God damn you, you son of a bitch. Get out of here or they'll recognize us. Later, the LAPD will coercively discredit Buckner and aggressively sabotage his lie detector test. Harry Carrion sees Sirhan at the gun club and in his grand jury testimony is unable to identify Sirhan's gun as the same one used against RFK. Sirhan's signature on the sign-in sheet at the range is verified as his own by Lawrence Sloan at trial. 3.30 a.m., Sirhan's brother Adele sees Sirhan buying a newspaper at this time on the corner of Lake and Washington in Pasadena. This is the last time Adele sees Sirhan before the assassination. 8 a.m., Sirhan leaves home in his car to buy a newspaper. 8.30, Mary Sirhan leaves for work. This is the last time she will see Sirhan before the assassination. At noon, Sirhan awakens his brother Adele for a telephone call and leaves in his DeSoto while his brother is on the phone. 
9 a.m. Campaign worker Estelle Stearns claims that she sees Sirhan at campaign headquarters at 5615 Wilshire Boulevard around this time, accompanied by two Arabic-looking men. Sirhan and one of the men are carrying guns in their shoulder holsters. They ask Stearns what Kennedy's campaign schedule is that day. They talk to her about golf. Sirhan asks her out for a cup of coffee, and one of the men asks if he can walk through the campaign headquarters. The LAPD also interviews Stearns' co-worker, Eleanor Severson, who refutes the report and refers to Stearns as a feather brain. In these reports, the possibility emerges that Sirhan may have been accompanied by Kaibar Khan at this time. In one police report, campaign worker Larry Streck claims that he saw Khan in the company of Sirhan at headquarters at this time. 9.30 to 11 a.m., Sirhan is at home, according to the LAPD. 11 a.m., he answers the telephone at home. From 11 to 5 p.m., Sirhan is at the San Gabriel Valley Gun Club in Monrovia practicing his shooting. From 5 to 6, his whereabouts are unknown. But between 5 and 5.30, RFK Kaibar Khan sees Sirhan at campaign headquarters on Wilshire Boulevard, accompanied by the girl in the polka dot dress. LAPD will later suppress this information. 6 to 6.40. Sirhan meets a former classmate at Bob's Big Boy in Pasadena. He goes to the cafeteria at PCC and meets several other friends, including Anwar Sayeg and Isa Mysteri. They discuss horse racing and check the racing results. Sirhan's friend, Gaymord Mystery, buys a copy of the LA Times at PCC and gives the classified section to Sirhan. Sirhan sees a notice for the, a march for Israel on the 5th on the Miracle Mile and mistakenly thinks it is this night. Thinking of the Six-Day War, he suddenly decides to go to this march. He leaves at 7.15 and drives to where he thinks the march will be and gets lost trying to find the Miracle Mile. He drives aimlessly and stumbles upon the headquarters of Senator Thomas Kuchel, who is losing in the race. Sirhan leaves, following some people to the ambassador. As he is walking to the hotel from his car, he sees a billboard for a Jewish organization and gets boiled up again. In his pocket, he is carrying newspaper articles about JF RFK's support for Israel. Here we see more evidence that Sirhan's rage against Jews was converted into a desire to kill Kennedy without him realizing it. Sirhan was not capable of doing this to himself. 7.30, unknown. 8.45, Sirhan is seen at the Ambassador Hotel. Sirhan talks to an electrician and asks him if he has seen RFK. Sirhan is holding a glass of milky fluid and is very talkative. 9 to 9.30, Sirhan talks to several young Mexican men in the palm court room of the hotel. He tells them that he doesn't care for RFK, is only seeking office for selfish reasons. He says he has just paid $20 on a drink to impress a hostess who is looking down at him. 9.30 to 10. He is seen standing in the colonial room looking at the teletype machines. He has apparently gone into his trance by this time, according to te teletype operator Mary Groves. Quote, I asked him what he wanted. He didn't answer. He just kept staring. I asked him again. No answer, unquote. 1015, Booker Griffin, reporter for the Los Angeles Sentinel and head of the Los Angeles chapter of the Negro Industrial and Economic Union, arrives at the Ambassador Hotel. He receives a press pass from Pierre Salinger and walks into the press room where he talks with friends. 10 to 1015, he is seen outside the restrooms next to the Venetian room. 1015 to 11, he is seen in the pantry of the kitchen. As Lisa Peace mentions, Ace Security Guard Thane Caesar, who will later be escorting Kennedy through the pantry, is one of the two guards tasked with checking 
press passes for entry into the pantry. However, Caesar does not appear to be doing his job, as there are many people without passes going in and out of the pantry. 1045, Booker Griffin sees Sirhan with a woman with dark hair and a white dress. Griffin later tells the LA Times, I thought he was a weird cat. 11 to 11.30, Sirhan's whereabouts are unknown. Of course, this half-hour window gives plenty of time for the girl in the polk the dot dress to prepare him to shoot Kennedy. 11.30 to 11.45, Sirhan is seen walking out of the pantry into the kitchen. 11.45 to 12, Sirhan is seen in the pantry asking people if Kennedy is going to come that way later. 12.05 to 12.10, Sirhan is seen standing on a tray rack in the pantry looking towards the stage. 12.10 to 12.15, Sirhan is standing next to an ice machine in the pantry. Shortly before the assassination, waiter Vincent DePero sees Sirhan standing next to the girl in the polka dot dress and recalls that the two of them had strange smiles on their faces. Sirhan will appear to be dazed and confused for several more hours, slurring his words, wheezing, kicking over a cup of hot chocolate, and shivering during, during his first interactions with police at around 12.45 a.m. According to Lisa Peace, Sirhan will later experience the same chills and shivering when he's coming out of his hypnosis with Dr. Diamond. Sirhan will not return to lucidity until his second interview at 3.15 a.m. when he begins to answer questions clearly and politely. Whatever trance or altered state Sirhan is in, it lasts many hours from roughly 9.30 p.m. to 3 a.m. 12.10. Kennedy finishes his victory speech in the ballroom and tells his aides he wants to go through the pantry to the colonial room to talk to the press. There is some discussion that there is a shortcut through the pantry, and the hotel's maitre d' Carl Euchre decides to lead the group through the pantry. Kennedy is followed by security star guard Thane Caesar and several bodyguards. 12.15. Sirhan jumps off the tray stacker and begins firing at Kennedy. According to Dr. Daniel Brown, Sirhan goes into a hypnotically induced alter personality state, exacerbated by alcohol, before shooting at RFK. Sirhan, who does not have dissociative identity disorder, according to Brown, and therefore cannot put himself into a trance, must receive cues from another person to enter the state. Sirhan has high hypnotizability and, according to Brown, must have been hypnotized prior to this event, in order to enter his amnesic dissociative state. Brown states emphatically that Sirhan does not and has never had paranoid schizophrenic disorder. Sirhan did not and could not have known that Kennedy was going to pass through the kitchen area and was led there by a woman who had received her instructions from an official at the event. Philip Melanson in the Robert F. Kennedy assassination repeats the 1974 interview given by hypnotherapist Dr. John Walters you can get into a self-hypnotic state, but when you start giving yourself a suggestion, it's back at a conscious level again, so you're no longer in a hypnotic state where I interject thoughts and pictures and you don't have to think, only absorb. According to Dr. Walters, the thoughts and pictures must be supplied by someone else. The patient can only absorb suggestions, not supply them. Dr. Brown finds that Sirhan has reasonably accurate memories, not if not complete recall of events surrounding the assassination, but total amnesia of the event itself. He finds no evidence that Sirhan is fabricating his memories or lack thereof. Sirhan's memories of this day are as follows. After going to the gun range, which he will remember clearly when asked later by Dr. Brown, Sirhan returns to PCC where he shoots Poole with a friend. He then goes to Big, Big Bob's to check out curls in his words. After seeing the advertisement for a parade commemorating 
the first anniversary of the Six Day War, he goes to the Wilshire area and sees a large group of people at a storefront campaign headquarters. He stops and asks the people where they are going. And they tell him there's a bigger party at the Ambassador Hotel. Sirhan goes to the Ambassador to pick up girls. He is told to go to the party for Republican Senator Rafferty and decides to go when told that Rafferty's daughter, Kathleen, goes to PCC and Sirhan knows her. <clears throat> In conversation with Dr. Brown, Sirhan recalls some details of the following events. He feels out of place and notices that the hotel is very hot and wants some lemonade. He goes to the bar where he feels that the bartender is giving him strange signals. Sirhan begins to feel very sleepy and is convinced that the bartender is communicating to him with gestures. He sits down to rest but realizes he must go home without meeting Kathleen Rafferty. So he goes to his car but realizes he's too drunk to drive and returns to the bar to get some coffee. According to respondents' brief, Sirhan remembers talking to a beautiful girl after returning from his car. He doesn't remember bringing his gun into the hotel. <clears throat> After returning to the hotel, according to Brown, Sirhan encounters a woman in a polka dot dress who tells him she knows where the coffee is. She leads him by the hand to a room behind the stage where they find coffee in a silver urn. He is entranced by the girl and decides he must take her to bed tonight. A man in a suit comes by and directs two, the two to the pantry. The girl leads Sirhan to the kitchen pantry area. In the kitchen, Sirhan tries to flirt with her and she sits on a tabletop showing her legs to him. She suddenly points behind him, pinches him very hard, and turns him around. She places her arm on his shoulder. He believes that he is at a gun range firing at a target with circles. The next thing he knows, he is being choked by someone, and there's chaos. Later, when Dr. Brown interviews Sirhan, Brown will notice Sirhan going into, quote, range mode, unquote, again. Brown finds examples in Sirhan's notebooks that show that he is responding to suggestions which have been designed, designed to provide cues to induce the hypnotic state and cause him into, to enter into range mode. The notebook contains a link between alcohol and love. Quote, alcohol will love, 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 unquote. And numerous circles that look like the targets at a gun range and will also be suggested by the circles of the polka dot dress. In hypnosis, Sirhan also recalls seeing a gunshot in front of him, presumably the this, this shot that entered the back of Kennedy's head fired by a second gunman. On May 23, 1969, in an interview on CBS, NBC News, Sirhan states, I don't remember it. I don't know that I did it. All I know, this sounds unbelievable to you, sir. It sounds unbelievable to psychiatrists. It sounds unbelievable to the world. But honestly, sir, I don't care whether, whether you want to believe it or not. Because I believe it, and my conscience is with me when I say that that's all really counts to me. He goes on, I remember a good part of it. The people that, whom I offered drinks to, the Puerto Rican and a couple of few Mexicans. And I remember the confusion. I remember the TV cameras very much like here, but they were bigger cameras. I remember the bright lights. After the shooting, Booker Griffin sees the woman in the polka dot dress run from the kitchen. And he unsuccessfully attempts to pursue her. After the shooting, LAPD officer Paul Sharaga, the first officer on the scene, receives information from witnesses that two more suspects, a woman and a man, were seen with Sirhan. He puts out an all-points bulletin on those suspects, but it is canceled at 1.41 a.m. According to LAPD radio log, disregard that broadcast. We got Rayford Johnson and Jesse Unra, who were right next to him, and they only have one man, and don't want them to get anything started on a big conspiracy. Later, Shiraga's statement is destroyed by the LAPD 
and replaced with one not written by him. Sandra Serrano, a volunteer for the Youth for Kennedy group, is sitting on the stairway outside the embassy ballroom when she hears the gunshots. A woman in a polka dot dress runs down the stairway, accompanied by a man who seems to be Mexican-American. The woman shouts, we shot him. Serrano asks, who did you shoot? The woman says, we shot Senator Kennedy. The woman has dark hair and a funny nose and is wearing dark shoes. Serrano remembers seeing these two with a third man earlier in the evening. The LAPD's coercive treatment of Serrano, who always insisted on the accuracy of her story and their destruction of other evidence, is well documented elsewhere. Epilogue after the assassinations. 7-1868. Important papers related to the case are burned by two student workers for the LAPD's special unit, Senator Investigation, at the L.A. County General Hospital. August 2468, LAPD orders, orders 2,400 photos related to the assassination destroyed in the incinerator of the Los Angeles County General Hospital. Officers H.R. Shields and T.J. Miller personally complete this task. June 8th, oh no, February, February 8th, 69, Dr. Bernard Diamond, UC Berkeley Professor of Law and Psychiatry, successfully hypnotizes Surion and causes him to climb on the bars of his cell like a monkey. Sirhan forgets that he's been programmed. In another test, Diamond succeeds in inducing Sirhan to write phrases and suggestions under hypnosis, which Sirhan does not have any memory of writing. Later, Sirhan believes the suggested writings are forgeries and not his own. The end. Thank you for listening.